I don't know about others of us that speak here occasionally, but when you're faced with a passage of the Bible or a topic to speak about, there's this kind of nagging feeling that you have to find something new to say. You can imagine the kind of thought process. How can I shed new light on a difficult passage? Or can I explore the background circumstances and reveal a new truth? Sometimes, though, we need to hear the old things. So for the next three weeks, we'll be looking at some basics of the Christian faith based on this little booklet called Knowing God Personally. It has four main points, which, of course, typically we're going to do across three weeks. And I've got the first two, then David and Kate have got one each. And the first point is... God loves us. There, you can see that, can't you? You can see that first bit. Okay, never mind. Uh, we, talk, we talk a lot about the love of God. So much so that I probably don't have to labour this point. We can quote, quote Romans 8.38, for example, where Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither life nor death death nor life even, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We sing a lot about God's love for us. We've done that already today. We sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Another familiar song takes its lyrics from the mouth of God himself when he gave Moses the law. We sing, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And these verses and songs are encouraging. We are encouraged that however we're feeling about ourselves right now, God loves us. Let's just have a quick peep at this passage with Moses. From Exodus 34, it's in verses 5 to 7. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Which brings me neatly to the second point of the four in knowing God personally. Though God loves us, sin spoils our relationship with God. Now, believe it or not, I found it incredibly hard to find the definition of sin in the Bible. Now, please don't jump all down my throat and say, it's obvious, Adam sinned and broke his relationship with God and we've been sinning ever since. Well, yes, you have a good point there. So I can pack up now and hand over to Susie. Okay, you need to get your money's worth out of me. So let's look more carefully at this uh, situation. Adam and Eve disobeyed a direct instruction from God. In doing what they were told not to do, they found they could disobey God they learned that there was a choice to do good or to do evil. And this opened the door to making bad decisions. 
Okay, so sin is disobedience to God, in a nutshell. Simple. Does that mean we need to have a list of instructions pinned to the wall so we must, that we must obey every day or we end up committing sin? Does that mean God is some sort of bureaucrat with a tick list? How do we know what he wants us to do moment by moment, just in case we don't do it and thereby sin? And anyway, why is disobedience so terrible that it breaks our relationship with the one that we believe to be a loving parent? After all, if a child disobeys their parents, say they refuse to pick up their toys, they don't usually get thrown out of the house. Is there a deeper problem here? Or is God just a petty tyrant like Putin, making up ever more rules so he can throw his opponents into jail? I'm going to admit right now, we may not come up with a complete answer. No surprise there. Instead of a developed argument, I found a series of observations. So let's see where we end up. In the Old Testament, the most common word that we translate sin is a Hebrew word, chatah. Now, Hebraists amongst us will probably correct my pronunciation, but we don't know how it sounded, so we'll go with it. Chatah. It's used for wrong done against people as well as offending against God. Now, I'll show you this from two incidents in the life of David before and after he became king. In the first example, King Saul was envious of David's popularity and was hunting him and wanted to kill him. And in 1 Samuel 19, Jonathan, Solomon's son and David's great friend, says, Jonathan, Solomon, Saul's great Saul's son and David's great friend. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. And if you're looking in the NIV, you'll find that translated as do wrong, which makes the distinction. And we know that Old Testament Hebrew has a small vocabulary, so some words have to do a lot of heavy lifting. And here we find chatar referring to wrong being done by a person to another person. Now the second example from the life of David is the time when Nathan the prophet confronted King David for his seduction of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. 2 Samuel 12 verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Each time I said sin there, this is the same word, chatar. Now at face value, we might say the wrong David did was to Bathsheba and Uriah, not to God. But Nathan goes on and says, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. And then Nathan goes on to describe a penalty that God will apply to David. Nathan tells David he's shown utter contempt for God. And that's another Hebrew word, na'atz. That's two words we've learned today, cha'ta and na'atz. Which we find in several places in the Bible, usually in terms of despising or scorning God, or an enemy, or a leader. Showing contempt for God, in this context is shown by fragrantly breaking his law. 
And we might update this concept by calling it uh, showing disrespect. Showing disrespect to God. So in causing harm to these people, David showed disrespect to God. Now is this simply a matter of breaking the highway code of life and getting points on your license? Or is there something deeper going on when we disobey God? Like I said, we've got a series of observations here. We'll see where it comes out in the end, if it comes anywhere. I'm trying to get closer to a definition of sin. So please bear with me while I read you some Old Testament kings who came to a sticky end. See if you can identify the common thread, which will stand out pretty quickly. Don't worry about their names. Just look for the common thread. All out of the first book of Kings. So, chapter 14, 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Bashar, son of Ahijah, don't worry about these names, became king of all Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned for 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Another one, chapter 16. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died. Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and following the ways of Jeroboam, and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Are we getting it? Chapter 16 later on. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Put him, fingered him now, son of Nebat. Committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. Even worse, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, son of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings before him. And there's loads more. So what's the common theme? The ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. By the way, I didn't just chase down the word sin. I followed the word chatar so that this is the same idea all the way through sin that I mentioned before. So what was so bad about Jeroboam that his name became a shorthand way of summing up how bad each of these kings was? If we find out what it was that he caused Israel to do, maybe we'll get closer to the bottom line of why sin is a problem. Given that Israel probably had its share of petty criminals and wife beaters who were all individual sinners. What was this big sin? Well, it's actually a whole royal soap opera. You should read it, good fun, starting in 1 Kings chapter 11. It all starts with King Solomon and his many, many, many foreign wives. And here's a sample, 1 Kings 11, 7 and so on. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, 
who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So God decided to take the bulk of Israel away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, maybe breaking the link with all the horrible gods, only leaving him two out of the 12 tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to preserve the line of King David. With me so far? Right. Through a prophet, God tells Jeroboam, who was a young man in the civil service, that he will take control of the other 10 tribes. And after several political manoeuvres, Jeroboam sets up his capital in the northern part of the country. However, the temple in Jerusalem, where people went to celebrate Passover and the Day of, Judgment, the Day of Atonement, was in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is when things start to go really bad. 1 Kings 12, from verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, Hmm... The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Just to knock the point home, after a rather strange confrontation with another prophet later on in 1 Kings 13, it says, even after this, the thing with the prophet, Rehoboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. This sin of Jeroboam led eventually to the exile of the nation of Israel into Babylon. So remember how it started with King Solomon indulging his many wives, though he didn't try to take the whole nation with him into these other religions, but Jeroboam did. He created new festivals and took the people away from God, setting up new places of worship equipped with idols. The sin of Jeroboam was contempt for God, for his covenants with Abraham and Moses flagrant flouting of several of the Ten Commandments, setting up and worshipping idols. Now the problem with idols is they're not just worthless lumps of wood and metal. Well, they are just lump, worthless lumps of wood and metal. It's what they symbolised was a great spiritual evil. When the writer of the Book of Kings talked about the detestable God of Moab and the detestable God of the Ammonites, he wasn't joking. These are religions that we found archaeological evidence for all these things that demanded human sacrifice, child sacrifice. And the people of Israel should have known better than to worship them. They had a covenant with God. They had their history of Moses and Abraham. Their ancestors made the covenant promise with God to follow his ways in return for his continued love and protection. Now, this spiritual evil existed on the day, back before the days of Noah, 
And in Genesis 6, it says that God was grieved or distressed by this. Another Hebrew word for you, at south. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That's our word, atzav, or grieved, or distressed. God, the mighty God, was distressed. And we find this word again, um, atzav, in Isaiah 63. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, my children who will be true to me. And so he became their saviour. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and, here's the word, grieved his Holy Spirit. And in Psalm 78, verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And that word vexed in Hebrew is tavar, it's to wound, and it occurs only here. Now we hear on the news something of the depth of depravity that human beings are capable of, of causing harm, sinning, to other people by war, by abuse, by seeing classes of people as less than human, as units to be trafficked or defrauded or slaughtered in the name of ethnic cleansing, this surely must grieve God. And it grieves us too. We wonder how people can be so blind to the wrong they are doing. And that blindness, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you, is sin. Are we brave enough to pray for the blindness of evil to be removed and for people to see themselves in relation to God. If there was a mass movement of the Holy Spirit convicting people of their sin, would churches be able to cope? What would we do with the influx of people torn apart by guilt? What remedy for sin can we offer them? Come back for next week's exciting episode. <laughs> How can our relationship with God, broken by sin, be fixed? <laughs>